Our Bible reading uh, this morning is from Zechariah chapter 2, continuing our series in, in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2, this is God's word. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, Where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within." Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord all mankind because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And we thank God for his word. Uh, just to remind you that there are uh, worksheets for the, the children if they want to, to use them just uh, at the door on the way in. Um, they're not specific to Zechariah. It was kind of hard to find worksheets for kids in Zechariah. It's not perhaps a a Bible passage that we, or a, a book that we turn to that often, especially with kids. But I hope... Um, that uh, they're helpful, and I hope uh, what I have to say today will help us all understand Zechariah together. We're going to continue to see how God builds his kingdom uh, as in this vision in Zechariah. I'm also going to be changing my gear and my preaching style a bit today, uh, down a gear rather than up a gear. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes when we go quickly through a passage, we can feel like I did when I was out for a run uh, with my daughter Trinity not so long ago. Uh, I was running along the towpath and she was on her bicycle. Uh, it used to be that I could run and, and keep up, but not anymore. She was way off uh, in the distance. So uh, to, to shift down a gear, I want to show you what's going on in this passage by asking some questions. The sort of questions that will help in reading any Bible passage, but especially one like uh, Zechariah. It can be a, a difficult book to understand, perhaps not as hard as Revelation or the last few verses of Daniel, but it does require a bit of work. Thankfully, in this chapter at least, it's fairly straightforward. So the questions we need to ask are about the symbols in this passage. What do they mean? There's the symbolic action of the man with the measuring line. There's the symbolic wall of fire around Jerusalem. And then, of course, there's the two cities as well, which are both real and symbolic at the same time, Babylon and Jerusalem. And notice that Jerusalem is also called Zion. Uh, the names are interchangeable. 
So as we think about these symbols, we'll also be looking to the New Testament because that will help us to apply these symbols to us today as believers in Jesus Christ. But we use symbols all the time in everyday life. When we drive uh, and we see road signs, we know that when it's triangular, it's, it's a warning sign. Uh, when it's circular, it's something that we need to obey, like a speed limit. And if it's a rectangle or a square, it's giving us information on the way we should go or how far it is to our destination. So think about a, a road sign that tells us the speed limit. It's just a, a piece of metal with a symbol painted on it. That's all it is, or is it? A symbol does so much more. And this symbol, the one with a number 30 in a red circle, it means that drivers, most drivers anyway, stick to safe speeds and the road doesn't become a racetrack. It means fewer people suffering life-changing injuries. It means fewer families shattered by grief. That's the power of this symbol. So when the Bible uses symbols, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to apply them with power into our lives. And often in the Bible, we have symbols doing exactly what they do. Uh, and those road signs, they give warnings, they give calls to obedience, and they give us important information which we need for our walk uh, with God. And the symbol that is, is dominant throughout this passage is the city of Jerusalem. So before we get to these other symbols, we need to ask, what is the symbolic meaning of Jerusalem? The picture here is uh, modern Jerusalem uh, as the physical city, not the symbol. But the reason I'm showing this picture is that it highlights for us the fact that Jerusalem in the Bible is symbolic for us today. Our focus is on the spiritual symbol, uh, not on the physical reality. Not that we shouldn't visit the actual city of Jerusalem, I'm sure that some of you have, and not that we shouldn't pray for the people who live there. But for us as Christians, the symbolic Jerusalem is much more important and much more real in our everyday lives. If we look at this picture, the, the physical reality of Jerusalem in 2022, rather than the spiritual symbolic reality, what do we see? We see a place where the temple of God used to once stand, now has a mosque, uh, a, a building dedicated to another religion. That's a disappointment, to say the least. The other disappointment is the lack of peace in modern Jerusalem. All we hear of in the news is constant conflict. And for Zechariah, the physical reality wasn't much better. His city had been destroyed, the walls had been demolished, the temple raised to the ground. For Zechariah, there was hope of change, that the walls and the temple would be fully rebuilt and restored, and that in fact did happen, but that change was temporary. Yes, the prophecy to restore Jerusalem uh, came about in a physical sense, but just a, a few decades after Jesus came, the temple was flattened once more. Jesus even told his disciples that what was, that was what was going to happen. So what, what are we to make of all this? Well, here's the thing about symbols. It is this, that the reality of what a symbol points to is far greater than the reality of what the symbol is in and of itself. To put it another way, the metal and paint on the 30 miles per hour sign 
is a far lesser thing than the effect and what the symbol produces. And the same is true of Jerusalem. The physical Jerusalem, even at the height of its glory under King Solomon, is far surpassed by the reality of what that symbol points to. So let's think what it points to. We have some clues in Zechariah chapter 2. First of all, notice in verses 7 and 10, God is addressing Zion, or Jerusalem, in personal terms. God is talking to a people, not to buildings. He's not talking to skyscrapers and shopping malls, to bridges or city landmarks, or, or to bins. <laughs> He's talking to Zion, Jerusalem, the people of God. And the city symbolizes that God dwells with his people because it has his temple in the center. And what Jerusalem, Zion, the people, not merely the place, need to know is that God is for them. As verse 12 says, he has chosen them, and this despite the history of God's people in the Old Testament, turning away from him, turning to false gods, worshiping idols. God again in his mercy and grace will choose Jerusalem and restore it. And so that was great news for Zechariah, and it's great news for us now. We know it's for us because the New Testament tells us that Zion, Jerusalem, is symbolic of the people of God today. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23 say these words to us as New Testament believers. It says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. If you are a believer, your name is written in heaven. God has a copy of your passport and it says that you are a citizen of heaven. So for followers of Jesus, Zion, Jerusalem is symbolic of the church. And we see this also in the book of Revelation. But the clues that Jerusalem is the church or symbolic of the church are right here already in Zechariah's vision in chapter 2. What we're going to see is that the church, what the symbol of Jerusalem points to, is far greater than the physical Jerusalem whose streets Zechariah would have walked. So with that in mind, let's go to these other symbols, starting with the first, the symbolic action of the man going to measure Jerusalem. Remember, this is a vision, and people and actions in a vision are symbolic of reality. So what is the, the meaning of this man's action? Well, we get a clue as we read the first four verses, because we see that he needs to be corrected by the angel. He's doing something wrong. So he is symbolic, his action is symbolic, and his error is symbolic. I don't know if you've ever made a mistake in, in measuring something. I'm sure many of us have. Maybe you put too much sugar into the, the wheaten bread when we were making that. Um, Trinity and I were making wheaten bread together, uh, and we managed to uh, save it, didn't we? Um, but th these, these things help us us learn. Uh, that was a, a very small mistake. Uh, but I had a colleague once when I was working as an engineer, and he used to work in a company that made quarry machinery. Now, I'm not sure if it was him or somebody else, but he told me that when the drawings were done, they made a mistake in the scale. Uh, and the end result when it went to the factory was they made a piece of quarry machinery 10 times larger than it should have been. 
probably turned out something like this picture rather than the smaller piece of machinery suitable for a quarry in Northern Ireland. But thankfully for whoever did those drawings, they managed to find a customer who had bigger quarry ambitions uh, and they bought that piece of machinery. But what was the measuring mistake of this man in Zechariah chapter 2? Before we think about his mistake, uh, we could ask, why did he make this mistake? Well, there's a famous phrase, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And that's what's happening here. It's a human mistake. And it's also a mistake of youth. This man is a young man, which means he lacks knowledge and wisdom. It's a very on-PC thing to say, isn't it? We need to affirm young people and tell them that they're clever. But in Zachariah's culture, they, have something, they had something which we have nearly lost. The idea that as you get older, you grow in knowledge and wisdom. And so this man's youth is symbolic of the fact that he needs to be taught something from God uh, via the angel. And the other crucial fact is that this man is human. He has a human outlook. He doesn't have the divine perspective of the angels. His vision was limited. He didn't know, know that God was going to do something greater than he could see with his naked eye. All he saw was the, the physical dimensions of a ruined city. And he had a hope that it would be rebuilt as it once was. But the angel corrects him and tells him that God has greater plans for a city so large it won't fit within the walls of old Jerusalem. I wonder if we ever make that same mistake. Do we view the church through human eyes? Do we neglect to be taught by God through his word about his plans for his church? What do we hear? And I hear these things, uh, I've heard these things often as I've been around different uh, churches. People say, not so many people go to church these days, or the church is in decline. Where have all the young people gone? Thankfully, that's not such a problem here in Mays, but you don't have to go far uh, down the road or in other churches to find people saying those sorts of things. And people also say that the world has changed so much, society is no longer shaped by Christian values. Again, that's a, a limited human perspective. And as we shall see in this very chapter, the world is not the church. And just because society was heavily influenced by Christianity in the past in this country, that doesn't mean that we should measure the world as if it were the church. And of course, if the church is in decline in this part of the world, that's not true in many other places. God always has bigger plans and his church is growing globally. The French uh, philosopher Voltaire, who was the 18th century equivalent of the atheist Richard Dawkins, he said that uh, he believed Christianity would be extinct 100 years after his death. And he believed he was living in the twilight of Christianity. Well, how wrong he was because he didn't believe in the power of God. And in fact, Christianity exploded with growth after his death. God's church is a city without walls, without the human limitations we put on his kingdom. But in a kind of paradox, what looks like a contradiction but isn't, the city does have walls, verse 4. The message from God is that Jerusalem will be a city without walls, but in verse 5, God says it will have a wall, a wall of fire. Well, as we think through this passage, we should ask these sorts of questions. 
What are city walls for? Because we don't think much about city walls anymore except perhaps as a tourist attraction. I think these walls are from York. Walls were built to defend cities from enemy armies, but modern warfare has made them obsolete. A city wall is not much use in a world where enemies can attack from the air with fighter planes and missiles, not just from the ground. But city walls are a reminder that we live in the sad reality of a fallen and sinful world in which some people want to forcibly exercise power and control over others. And so walls protected the citizens of a city from those who would attack and enslave them or worse. But of course, a city wall also limited the size that a city could be. You couldn't just keep knocking walls down and rebuilding them to surround a growing city. They weren't very movable, like uh, an electric fence uh, that farmers can move around the field. Uh, look at those walls. They'd be hard to knock down and rebuild. Uh, and so we have this paradox that Jerusalem, symbolic Jerusalem, because it's not an actual city in this vision, will be a city without walls because it's going to expand so much. And it will especially expand through immigration. Verse 11, many nations will be added to it. And that is us, us Gentiles, as we saw in the book of Acts. But the ever-expanding city will still need protection. It will still need to be protected, and it will be by the one who can absolutely guarantee its protection, God himself. And so this paradox of a city without walls but yet has walls has two amazing reassuring truths for us today if we are truly citizens of the new Jerusalem God's kingdom, his church. And these two truths are that God's kingdom will continue to grow and that God will continue to watch over it and keep it secure. And why is this? Why does God do this? It's because of another great reassuring truth we see in verse 8. It says that we, the people of God, are the apple of God's eye. We are precious to him. I hope you know that. Sometimes, when life is hard, God can seem distant. Remember, this promise of the wall of fire is about our eternal security, and it's coupled with another promise that God will be in the city, verse 5. He will be its glory within. Even in the hard times, God is with us, and he will hold us secure forever. Romans 8, verse 39 assures us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But having focused on Jerusalem, we also have to pay attention to verse 7 and notice that this is a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. One city, one kingdom is secure, but the other isn't. There's a lot that could be said about the symbolism of the city of Babylon. The book of Revelation really goes to town on it. But for our purposes, here in Zechariah chapter 2, what we need to know is that it is the opposite of Jerusalem. The real city of Babylon in Zechariah's time was the city of King Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Jerusalem about 50 or so years ago. And ironically, today it is Babylon that is in ruins. But Babylon remains for us a symbol of the world. And what are God's people to do? They are to escape from Babylon and experience all the blessings of Jerusalem. Verse 6 says that they are to flee from the land of the north. 
North was the direction they would have come from to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. Put like that, why would anybody want to stay in Babylon? But of course, this is a vision, not the reality. And in the real world, unless we are guided by God's word, we can get confused. We can get lost like being up a mountain in the mist and end up going in the wrong direction. And this vision of Zechariah and all of God's word is like a compass to keep us in the right direction. And the message is clear. Babylon is doomed to destruction, verse 9. God's hand will be against those who are against his people, so much so that their own slaves will plunder them. Normally an enemy plunders you, but in this case the city of Babylon will, imp will implode in upon itself. So we need to make sure that we are in the right city. And the one who enables us to escape from Babylon is Jesus. When we put our trust in him, in his death on the cross for our sins, we move house from an address in Babylon to an address in Jerusalem. I hope that's true of you. And if it's not, that you will make that journey of faith to live in the right city where you will know God's love and his blessing. But even for those of us who have changed address, there's always the temptation to go back to visit Babylon again, isn't there? To walk down those streets again. The thing about those two cities in Zechariah's time is that they were hundreds of miles apart. It could take months to get from one to the other. But in the symbolism in our daily lives, these two cities overlap. We are in the world all the time. But as Christians, as citizens of Jerusalem, of God's kingdom, we must always remember that we are not of the world. We are not citizens of Babylon. And in that sense, we are called to escape daily from Babylon and make sure that we're in Jerusalem because it's the only city that will last forever. It's the only city in which God dwells with us by his Holy Spirit and we with him, where we know that we are the apple of his eye. The presence and centrality of God is what makes Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the worship of false gods of idols is what makes Babylon, Babylon. Babylon may dazzle with its lights and with its opulence. I wanted to use that word opulence, but I better define it because I know when we get home, Trinity will go to my phone and say, hey Google, what does opulence mean? Well, it means uh, great wealth and luxury. And in the original Babylon, that wealth and luxury that they had was obtained at the expense of the suffering of other people. It was looted from other cities, cities like Jerusalem, and it was built on the backs of slaves. And so a huge part of being a citizen of Jerusalem is how you treat other people, people made in the image of God. And that all stems from what God you worship. The God of Jerusalem revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ or the false gods of Babylon. The God of Jerusalem tells us to love him with all our heart and our soul and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The false gods, the false gods of Babylon of the world demand our time and our energy and effort to the detriment of other people. Well, I hope my explanation, my brief explanation of these symbols has been helpful and I've shown you something of what sort of questions to ask as you read this sort of Bible passage and other similar Bible passages that have this sort of symbolism. 
But most of all, I hope that these symbols will work powerfully in my life and your lives so that God would build his kingdom in us and through us. So that we would see and know and be an active part of this city without walls with the glory of God in its midst. Let's pray for that now. Father God, we thank you that as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, that we become citizens of the new Jerusalem, citizens of your city in which your glory dwells. But Father God, you know that we live in, in a world in, in Babylon as well. And so we have this, this conflict. Father God, help us always to remember uh, that we are citizens of Jerusalem and to act as citizens of Jerusalem, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. Help us to make the choices that keep us walking the streets of Jerusalem and not taking the side streets and side alleyways into Babylon. Father God, help us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and keep him central in our lives. And Father God, we thank you for those great promises that you will make your kingdom grow, that Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Help us to be part of that promise, Father God. And we thank you for the promise that you are a wall of fire around your city. You're a wall of fire around us and that you keep us secure and that we can know that nothing will separate us from your love. Because of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.